Well, thanks very much indeed um, for um, for having me here um, to present uh, to present to to everyone. I'm very grateful for that opportunity, and also I'm very grateful to see so many people still here uh, at the end of the conference. I know that a lot of people have had to leave, um, which I don't take personally. Um, it's been a wonderful conference. I think we'd all agree, um, and it's just been it's been a, a great experience, a great opportunity for us all to network. I do kind of wish that I'd been to this exact conference before I wrote this presentation, because I'd have kind of had an idea about what other people were going to say. Um, so some of this will be duplicated, but it's, this is this is what I think and what I've what I've done. So um, I'm going to talk about building a research network, um, which is called. Arc, um, and hopefully by sharing the experiences that I've had in building that network or helping to build that network, uh, that might be of use and of interest um, to the people here. I've had the introduction um, now, so I won't go into it too much. This picture um, was taken. Fortunately, that wasn't inter wasn't my own blood seeping from the inside um, to the out of the outside of the gown. Um, this was us discovering that our surgical gowns at the, at the vet school at Cambridge weren't in fact bloodproof. Um, so the animal did live; it did very well. Um, but um, I just quite enjoy that picture. Um, as well as um, the introduction I've been given, I have published a few um, a few things myself. I haven't got a, a huge um, portfolio. The things that I've published have tended to be um, the things that I face or information uh, uh, regarding or relating to the things which I face every day if there's been a gap in the literature or an opportunity. So the first thing I looked at was um, dogs that had stick injuries, which seems like an almost an absolutely classic childhood vet injury. I mean, dogs chase sticks. It's such a, an obvious thing, but it is a hugely difficult area um, with not very much information published. And so I was very grateful to learn an awful lot more about it by, um, by kicking off with that. Um, I've, I've done a couple of other things as well, designing uh, or publishing somebody else's work, designing a, a novel device for treating uh, cats with broken jaws. Um, when they've broken their jaw at the back part of the jaw, it can be quite a difficult thing to manage. And this particular technique, which we uh, were very proud of the fact we came up with a name that also described a beard, which is what it looked like. And it, was, it really was a remarkable moment. But I'm sure the sharper eyed amongst you will realise we've mixed up the, the Roman and the Greek in bigonathic. It should be diagnathic. That didn't work. We ignored it and we got away with it. So um, very proud of that contribution to the veterinary literature. And then there's been a few other things as well. Um, so as a full declaration, which I think we've probably covered most of those things, I'm currently employed by Independent Vet Care, um, working at Southern Counties Veterinary Specialists. Um, that, I say currently, I think I've finished in about two weeks from there. Um, and I've set up a, a company uh, called Petsmiths, which is, we'll see what happens with that one. I'm not too sure where that's going to go, um, but it's an exciting time for me personally. Um, the other things we've talked about, I'm a member um, of the Association for Veterinary Soft Tissue Surgery. I founded this society I'm talking to you about today. Um, I, am a, I, I do sit on the BSAVA Scientific Committee. Uh, very recently I've started to do that. I'm a di diplomat of the European College of Veterinary Surgeons. Um, I do do a little bit of postgraduate teaching for BSAVA and for vets now. Um, and I'm a member of some, of some of these associations and I've had a few very small grants. So that's a full declaration. So you can now judge what I say um, with that information. So I'm going to talk to you about this building this network. And we'll start with who or what it is um, and where did it come from. I'll then move on to talking about what's been achieved and how that's been achieved um, before really looking at the future, because that's, uh, we are where we are now. But what ideas do we have and how can the people in this room uh, help to contribute to those ideas. Uh, so it, it, it's kind of um, structured a bit like a scientific paper with an introduction. It's a bit of a mashup between the um, materials and methods and the results, which, I mean, to be honest, with a lot of the studies that we do, that is the real situation. It, it's, it's, it's something that uh, is quite a, a true... Um, quite truthful according to what actually happens. And then the final part will be the discussions and the conclusions. But before going on to that, really, it's just a question of why. Why on earth would, would we want to do this? And this is going to cover a bit of the same ground because it is all about evidence-based veterinary medicine. And this is my um, particular version of these three pillars um, of, of um, the things which go into making these decisions which we want to improve and which um, every vet wants to improve. They might not know they want to improve it in these particular ways. Ways, but this is a great framework and we're aiming for this middle part of the Venn diagram. Um, 
if you're ignoring one of these circles, we'd all think, oh, of course, we're never going to ignore those things. But ignoring patient facts and client expectations, that can be as simple as not understanding that a client doesn't want to get into debt for their dog. So it can be as simple as um, not really hearing what they're saying and almost um, encouraging or, or failing to discourage them from pursuing something they can't afford. So we, I think we can inadvertently end up in these areas um, from, from time to time. Um, equally, I think it'd be quite unusual to ignore our own clinical experience, but maybe if we read something that's particularly great or, uh, and if the, the patient in front of us, the client, wants it, maybe we will try something we've not tried before. And maybe that isn't going to be the best decision we're ever going to make. And equally, we may ignore the best external evidence, and that may be because we haven't looked for it or we don't know it, or maybe because it doesn't exist. And so a lot of um, what I'm interested in looking at is really about how this best external evidence can be expanded to make it less likely that we ignore it, uh, expanded in terms of its availability uh, and its dissemination. Just out of interest, this is a seven-wave Venn diagram, um, which I came across during the um, research of this talk, and I'm quite glad there aren't seven pillars of evidence-based veterinary medicine things, because I think this would be a little bit harder for us to all unpick, but um, there we go. So uh, here's a pyramid, which um, is not a staircase, but um, I think it is still a very useful thing. It's something which we understand, and there is a larger volume of things, um, of the information that's available. Um, so it does, it does in some ways reflect that, and it's all looking at the amount of bias. We've talked about that a lot. I'm not going to talk about this particularly, but looking at my own rather impressive portfolio and the six studies I produce, there they are, um, they're all down the bottom. Um, but that doesn't mean they're not useful. I mean, the tracheostomy in dogs paper that I've published is the only information that's available about managing tracheostomy tubes in dogs. So it's a useful paper, I think, because it gives some information. So um, I'm not alone, though. I, I, I sadly missed um, Steve Budsberg's opening talk. I don't know whether he referred to this particular study that he was involved with, which was analysing and looking at the level of evidence of all of the papers that have been published over... Uh, all the abstracts, sorry, that have been presented at the American College of Veterinary Surgeons annual meeting over a 10-year period. And they looked at about 1,400 surgical abstracts, and they found 4% were of level 1 evidence, which was at the strong evidence end of things. 9% um, were level 2, 66% level 3 evidence, and 21% are level 4. So representing that graphically, it, it is fairly pyramid-esque. It's got a big bottom to it, and it's got a very uh, small top part. Um, so we do have a lot of the bottom end of these studies, and that's they're great, but... Um, we, we need to look at the rest of that uh, particular hierarchy. We've heard from various um, people who are in, involved with systematic reviews, um, with generating systematic reviews, and it's been inspirational to hear um, from different people using those systematic reviews so effectively. The lady who spoke about lab animal medicine, I thought was a wonderful presentation about how that can be used. The gentleman who was discussing disaster relief and using systematic reviews as a tool to provide really important information. So it was wonderful to see those presentations here, but also um, to know that we um, are now identifying those systematic reviews ourselves and that we're looking to perform these knowledge summaries, perform these best bets. So we are having some uh, information generated at the top, but uh, what we're really potentially short of is these areas in the middle. We've got a lot at the bottom, we've got a little bulge at the top, um, but we're, we're short of things in those, uh, those middle tiers. So rather than a pyramid, I was just trying to think of what, sub, what structure would best represent veterinary evidence today with that particular shape. And actually, the ship's decanter of veterinary evidence is a much more suitable subject for where we're at the moment. Um, we are short uh, of good quality cohort studies, of planned cohort studies, and of randomised controlled trials. And those things, as we know, are of critical importance if we're going to filter and sift the evidence. Um, Rachel Dean um, put up this letter earlier as an example of, um, of naysaying, and she actually replied very nicely to that and used this Chinese proverb, the better, which now I see has been quoted by the dermatology guy as well, um, about better to light a candle than curse the darkness. And a candle in the darkness is, is a, a very nice metaphor but there's still quite a lot of darkness out there. I mean, it's just one candle there. So realistically, um, we need to maybe potentially look at what else we can do. And if there's a few of us at a particular Bon Jovi concert um, of life, I don't know where this metaphor is really going now, um, then there can be more light shed. 
lighting your own candle isn't the only way. So this is a great picture I found about a camera inside a mirror box with a couple of candles in it. And the amount of light that, uh, that comes from mirrors within this situation is also, it's still light, it's still reflecting something. So I'm not quite sure how that works out with us as well, but this is where I wanted to take the light metaphor. If you've got a whole bunch of us sat around in the darkness, we can work out how to create alternative lighting mechanisms. We can work together in a slightly unusual way to build structures, build processes, which then can provide a lot more light uh, in a way that's maybe more effective than lighting a single candle or lighting multiple candles. So I do run out of, get, I've had a few problems with this sort of with things like global warming and with things like what happens to, um, to moths as they're flying through the night or um, poor, poor Robin singing from 2am whereas they didn't used to, but we'll leave that metaphor, I think. So I wanted to look at why we had um, so few veterinary clinical trials and the assumption I made is that we all want to treat things well using good quality scientific, uh, good clinical research, which is scientific evidence. And we, we know there are significant gaps in the evidence base. But when I was, re when I was writing this talk, I then thought, well, is, is this true? Is this, is this assumption actually the case? And, um, and why is it that we, we have these gaps that are, that are present? So maybe we, maybe we just expect other people to do this for us. Maybe we expect people in, in advantageous positions, whatever they are, um, to be able to just produce stuff for us so that we can then use it uh, on our own. Um, or maybe we don't feel like we need the evidence at all. Are we just really comfortable following the herd? Um, herd herd behaviour, conformity, is uh, a very safe thing for us. It's quick, it's easy, it's safe, and it's a very natural behaviour that we have. And I think, from, well, certainly from my own experiences, um, it's a very comfortable thing to ask somebody else what they do and for the, to learn from them and they've learned from other people and, and so on and so forth. So herd behavior, herd mentality is a very powerful motivator for us and it, it can also be a, a powerful demotivator for us if the, it's only the minority of people that are pursuing evidence-based medicine um, because we're the outliers, we're the ones to be taken down by the, um, by the tigers. Maybe not tigers, maybe lions would be better. Um, maybe we don't feel like we need... Um, any scientific evidence at all to justify our clinical decisions. Um, we can stand there. We, we, are, we have a relationship with our clients, be they farmers, be they horse owners, be they whoever they are, whichever owners they are, we have a relationship that is built entirely on trust. Um, and that trust comes, it's a, it's a critically important thing, and we are, in general, very good at building it and keeping it by our actions. And if we don't need scientific evidence to do that and to keep that trust, if there isn't that pressure on us to do it, um, then maybe that's a, a powerful demotivator for us all. And I think we can build the thought that we are superheroes. And if we're unchallenged, if we're operating in isolation, um, that is a position which, um, which we can easily get to. So th those are some thoughts about why there might be uh, a dearth of these type of trials or this type of information. But the reality, I think, which we'd all share is that the vast majority of us have got deficiencies in time, in money, in research expertise, uh, or in caseloads. Because to have all four of those things, there's not many individuals that will have, um, have all four of those things which are a key building blocks to be able to create useful information. And even then, if it's just that one, individual, uh, one individual's information, how applicable is that? We've touched upon that earlier. So we have all learnt, we all know, we can't, we can't do anything about this. We, we just can't do it. There's no way that we can be the ones that are going to do that, so we'll leave it to anyone else. Um, and we're too busy. We're too busy to even think, even think that that, that we don't even question that that's the case. It's not something that would occur to us. Um, and let alone think that actually we can and should all actually do something about it. And again, we've, we're all here. So we're, we're all, this is an easy audience, but it is something that, um, that I think is, is important. It's a, an important thing that I think most people have forgotten. So we'll move on to what the AVSTS is, the Association for Veterinary Soft Tissue Surgery. And I'd, I put a lovely picture up here of, of, a, um, of a racing pug uh, in its natural environment on the, uh, on the veldt. It's in a part of a pack. They're about to take down a caribou at this time. Um, love the brachycephalics. Um, so we're a BSAVA affiliate group, um, which means we operate under their umbrella. They give us some support um, each year. And to, for activities, but they, they leave us alone to do whatever we want to do. Um, 
our, our aim or the aim of the AVSTS is to promote uh, the study and development of veterinary soft tissue surgery in all species. Um, we've recently changed our constitution to change it down to in small animal species because um, we weren't doing anything about any of the other species. So um, the membership is open to everyone. It's a not-for-profit organisation. It costs the princely sum of £20 a year to join. Um, but even if you don't join, if you want to come to one of our meetings, we just charge you an extra 20 quid. Um, we've got about 200 members uh, in this society at the moment, which is phenomenally low considering that most vets uh, who are working in practice will be performing soft tissue surgery of some description on most days of the week so the fact that there's only 200 of us here we're not we're not quite sure why that is it's probably awareness probably motivation probably time probably money all those things um, but we are a mixture of gp vets and um, either in mixed or in small animal practice um, some certificate holders or people training for their certificates, some diploma holders or people training for their diplomas, um, some nurses, interns, surgery residents. So it's quite a, a diverse group. Um, we have an executive committee uh, and we have a number of officers um, like the, uh, the president, the secretary, the treasurer, um, who are elected from the membership for fixed terms. Um, and we're a sociable, friendly clinical network. Um, the main things that we do and the main things that uh, we keep on ticking over is to organise clinical meetings each year. So we tend to do two a year. One is on the Wednesday of the BSAVA meetings um, and a lot of the affiliate, affiliate groups do a meeting on that particular day. So it's a one-day meeting. It has a certain format looking at what's new and hot. We'll get some human speakers in. We'll ask people who are coming to BSAVA anyway to talk about the things that they really want to talk about rather than the things that BSAVA is asking to talk about. And so we actually have a very nice, very interesting meeting. Uh, it's quite varied. It's quite unpredictable. We have our annual general meeting then we, we do various awards for people which i'll come back to later we also run a two-day meeting in the autumn every year dots around the country in various places this year it was in manchester we did a joint meeting with the medic medics special interest group um and it's a it's a relaxed discussion forum meeting it's uh, a very again another interesting meeting um involving international human speakers so if you're interested you're very welcome to come along to any of these meetings we run a website we give a prize for the best surgical abstracts in our view um using various criteria each year and invite the speaker to come and talk to us and um, we give free uh, tickets to our meetings to a veterinary student and to a, a vet in practice every year to try and encourage openness and uh, inclusiveness uh, and we have links to the world veterinary association online education portal that's quite a recent thing and we're going to look to explore how we can best make use of that for our members and i, I do like to take a pause and I've, i guess AVSTS is one um, clinical network. It's one special interest group. It's filled with people who are highly motivated and who want to better themselves, improve themselves and learn more. Uh, it's one of hundreds of clinical networks. These clinical networks exist everywhere. Anytime you have a group of vets who are interested in doing something, who are motivated enough to get up and organise themselves to do something, you have this sort of, these sort of conditions. These conditions are met. So what I'm saying today about what we're doing within the AVSTS, um, I think is a, a hopefully an example of what else is going on um, with the other groups or hopefully it can provide um, some information for people interested in doing that with their groups. Our group and these other groups are current and relevant to the vets within their membership. Um, they do encourage open-mindedness um, and discussion about these clinical problems that we all face. They help to share the experience and the in-depth knowledge of the, of the relevant literature. Um, and it's that combination of things which I think um, is, is so important because where there, where there are gaps, we do turn to eminence. And it can't all be our eminence, it can't all be our evidence. It's the combination. We reward and encourage original scientific research and we also support those seeking further education. But we still think we can do more. Um, in 2012, so four years ago, at the end of a committee meeting, um, we agreed that we'd try and do something to uh, encourage or support original veterinary uh, research in some way. Um, and I'm sure we've all sat in committee meetings like this. Uh, this two-hour meeting was almost as productive as a single well-written email. Um, we tend to go around the houses. We tend to get to a point where everyone's a bit tired. And then someone says, yeah, but how are we going to increase our membership? We need to do social media. And you kind of end up just spiraling a little bit. But that was our agreement. We try and do something more. I was leaving the committee at this point. I'd served my term. Um, and I agreed that I'd try and do something about it because I'd suggested the idea and I thought, well, that would be quite interesting to, to take a look at and now I've got some time. Unusually and oddly, I, I somehow agreed to be the secretary of the organisation at the same time on the promise that it was no work whatsoever. Um, so that, uh, that kind of backfired a little bit. Um, so that's a little bit about who the AVSTS is, um, where the idea for the research cooperative came from, 
um, and about why it's an important thing. And so we'll move on to the materials and methods and results, which, as I've already said, I'm going to tell it how it was rather than repackage it for you in a, in a more formulaic way. Um, we thought about what we could do and how we could do it, and we rejected a few options first. We didn't just want to encourage people because people are motivated, people, are, people we're working with are motivated, and if they're not doing something already, just telling them, oh, go on, go on, you know you want to, is not going to be very likely to be effective. Um, other affiliate groups give specific grants to people um, to um, encourage them to do certain projects. We looked at that and we like it as an idea, but we decided to try and do something differently to that. We then, um, were, I was aware at the time of these two, um, these two organisations which aim to um, generate and harness big data in, in similar but different ways. Um, and whilst they're fantastic at what they're doing, it wasn't something that we were looking to do something different to that. So we wanted to see what we could do. Um, and there were precedents set for this. And we, we came up with the aim that what we wanted to do as a clinical network was to facilitate the production of good quality multi-centre clinical research that was of relevance to our members. So it's not, not rocket science, but we want to, in some way, build something that helps people do what we all think is a good idea. Um, and the key thing was that we, we're not trying to build a network ourselves, we're just using a pre-existing clinical network. And I think that is the, the really obvious but really important thing about what, um, what ARC has, or how ARC has come about. Um, we want to harness the skills within it because there are people who see cases who don't have research expertise. There are people who have research expertise who don't see cases. Uh, there are people with administrative expertise. There are people with computing expertise. It's not rocket science to see that you can kind of figure these bits together and basically act like a dating agency for in some strange way with multiple people. Um, the concept had been used by AVSTS before. We'd had a group of people approach us and want to use our members to generate data for their study. They wanted to look at a particular um, aspect of treating portosystemic shunts using uh, a cellophane band technique where a piece of cellophane is wrapped around an abnormal vessel and slowly over time it constricts it. But the thing is, what people found and what this study found was that the things that people have in their packet is called cellophane, ain't cellophane. Uh, it's loads of different things depending on where you buy it from. And so how applicable or any of these results so that their particular study was a very interesting one and it used our network and that was the kind of proof of concept that it would work so ARC just aimed to be more to formalize the processes and to be more holistic uh, about that and uh, we do have a great example uh, of a network that's doing this particularly effectively um, the Veterinary Society of Surgical Oncology which is based in the States which is a global network um, if you haven't seen what they're up to it's definitely worth visiting their site um, because they have been generating this kind of information for a period of time amongst motivated people. So in terms of how we're going to achieve that, um, the phrase, am I going to reinvent the wheel, sort of comes up. Are you going to try and, do, I was thinking at the time, well, are we going to try and do something which somebody else has already done? Um, and I thought, well, what does that mean? And it's, it's said in negative terms. Reinventing the wheel tends to be a, a negative phrase for us all. It, it tends to be something we think involves a great waste of time or effort creating something that already exists. Um, and so I didn't think that actually applied to us in, in many ways um, because the act of inventing a wheel um, is actually quite interesting for the people doing the inventing. It's quite nice to learn um, about how you build a wheel. That's quite an interesting and important thing. It helps you to understand it. It helps us not get trapped into somebody else's thinking. It helps us to be more uh, liberated with our ideas. Um, and at the end of it, it's our wheel. We can do what we like with it. And, and so in some ways, rebuilding or, or recreating something out of nothing um, when something else similar exists, it, it is an important thing. And that, that aspect of reinventing a wheel is quite good. But you can also reinvent a wheel in a different way. So the phrase to reinvent the wheel, you can just take a wheel and put it to different purposes. And that too is what we're looking to do. We're looking to see how our network can be used, how it can integrate um, and those things. So in fact, I think we were trying to reinvent the wheel in many different ways. We started by looking at the whole process of what we wanted to achieve. So um, starting with an idea, and that seems like a really simple thing. Um, refining that idea to create a study and that might involve some statistical planning it might involve some ethical review and that that might involve some sort of two-way process um, this might involve something online it might involve um, real time real meetings a real world forum of some description um, we might want to identify some funding we might want to apply for that funding uh, and write a grant application for that potentially um, then we're going to want to launch a study in some way that hopefully recruits centres to it. We're going to want those centres to recruit cases. Uh, we want those cases to generate data and for that data to be analysed. Um, 
I'm being a bit quick for this. We're going to want uh, that data to be presented, um, as well as, I think we might run a load of batteries on this, actually. I'm not sure if you've got a different uh, way of turning the pages, please. Um, but we're look at, looking at um, all of these steps. This, this at this stage was looking very much at just identifying the process to work out what we could do um, as an organization. So um, data analysis and presentation at, at some sort of real-world forum kind of helps to start to make this, rather than a linear process, starts to make it a bit more of a circular process with some feedbacks in there. Um, looking at, um, we have to look at the process of multi-author editing of a particular paper, looking at then how the presentation and the multi-author editing lead to publication. Um, and the research cooperative, the thing that we wanted to do, we thought, well, we could probably set the rules of the, of the process we're going to do. We could potentially drive and coordinate the process. Um, we could potentially mentor people through it, and we could look at making all these phases as easy as possible. But the net result of this, the net result of the presentation, the net result of the publication, um, and these forums that we're looking at, it does have a big feedback loop. It does end up leading, hopefully, to inspiration for people to see what we're doing and to see that they can be involved with that. That inspiration um, helps to promote and grow our particular network, and it helps to develop a shared goal and a shared sense of ownership for this particular idea, which hopefully will generate more ideas. And so what we were hoping to do was to achieve a virtuous circle where each section of the circle is helped as much as possible. Um, and it's, uh, that was the, the starting point of what we wanted to do. Um, so before we started, I just sat down and I thought, well, we guess we've got to have some sort of rules for this. And I just did my best. I didn't really look anywhere for this. It wasn't evidence-based. It was just what I reckoned would be sensible, knowing the people that were involved, knowing what we kind of wanted to do, knowing where we wanted to go, what sort of things might be barriers, how could we have some rules in place that will make people feel less concerned about the process they were going through. I had, it wasn't just me, I, I had I'd asked, our, 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 um, I'd asked people for their views on what would worry them about this sort of process. So um, I then wrote some rules, I wrote an algorithm about the process itself, um, about how we determine whether someone ended up as being an author or whether they'd end up being just acknowledged on the paper. And that authorship depends on whether they run the study or contribute cases, but also whether they contribute to every stage of paper writing, of review, and when the paper comes back from being reviewed. They, they have to keep on going and keep on going. And if at any point they don't, then they're out and they're um, an acknowledgement only because we wanted to keep this, um, this ticking over. Um, ownership of the project, we looked at that. Um, we actually call the person whose project it is the provisional primary author. Um, and if they fail to take things on in a timely manner, they've already given me their information, given me the data as a central point, they've given me the introduction, they've given me their literature search. So then that particular hat of being the, the primary author can move on to somebody else if, if the person who has it is not using that data and is not progressing through things. So um, we also wanted to have some sort of mechanism of arbitration if there's a problem. Um, we want to look at things like anonymity, um, where it was important because people don't want their data, and data security as well, people don't want to uh, potentially have things come out in an unintended way, which could be embarrassing, hurtful, or, or worse. It could lead to real headaches. So these are the sorts of things you wrote in. And we also looked at the um, ethical review aspect of things, um, which we'll come back to shortly. So really, it was an attempt to provide a framework, a book of rules. Um, I emailed it to everyone to see if I'd get any feedback. And it was great because I'd written the perfect document. I didn't get a single um, dispute over what I'd written. So um, I took that as being tremendously positive. Um, so there we go. That was the starting point there. Um, I guess it is possible that it was just that people didn't necessarily find the time to read um, my rather dense uh, dense attempts at writing this sort of thing, but, you know, I'll, I'll bear that in mind. I'm having problems with the clicker again. I don't know um, if there's a connection problem there. Oh, there we go. So the people we had in place at the time, is, is Mark still here? Um, Mark um, started out with us. Um, Nick Jeffrey started out with us. Um, Mark is an epidemiologist. Nick is an experienced uh, clinical researcher and statistician. Um, Alison Young, who was the secretary, uh, or the, yes, she was a, the um, administrator at the AVSTS at the time. Um, she'd agreed to help with administrative things. I was the coordinator. The Animal Health Trust had very kindly agreed to act as our ethical review panel. Um, and Dan Brockman, who was the outgoing president of the AVSTS, agreed that he would just be there so that his name um, could maybe help it to generate some interest and he could act as the final arbitrator. Um, so that was the initial thing. So then we were faced, once we sort of had to think about our structure and how we were going to do it, we were faced with the problem of, well, what, what are we going to do? 
what, what are we going to study? What, what's the thing that is going to really make this start? And who's going to stick their head above the parapet to get it shut off? Um, because it's daunting. For the first project, it's got to be great. It's got to be perfect. You want to have an interesting thing that engages people. It's got to be relevant. It's uh, got to be common enough that we can get some data um, and that it's going to be applicable in a, in a likely manner, in a, in a frequent manner. It's got to be fairly straightforward, fairly non-controversial. Ethically, it's got to be a no-brainer. Um, we had to look at the balance between specialists and general practice um, to reflect our membership. We wanted to find out what sort of data, think about what kind of data would be available um, and how we would get that and whether it would be reliable. Um, we had to think about the outcomes measures we'd use, whether they were going to be effective and appropriate and all of those things that we've, we've heard about this week. Um, we wanted something that inspired cooperation and we wanted something that was led by a finisher. And realistically, that, that's, that felt like it was quite a difficult task at the time. But then I think you can kind of put that difficult task into context that there are other difficult tasks that are available um, in the world at the moment which do need solutions and there are some very serious and very sad things available so it helped me to put this into context that actually this is eminently achievable um, and so therefore therefore we should just get on and, and do something. Um, we discussed a few choices and we came up with the idea that gastrointestinal biopsy would be a wonderful topic for us to kick off with because everyone does it and it's a procedure that can lead to death. Uh, and so it's a really nice thing to try and study and get some information about that. I think there had been a recent or fairly recent paper by one of the members of the research cooperative that had suggested there was a 12% breakdown rate for gastrointestinal biopsy cases. And that was the only specific piece of information relating to gastrointestinal biopsy. And that seemed to be massive. Um, so we felt like it would be important to try and actually reflect what was a, a more uh, a, a number which fitted more with our interpretation of what happened. So AVSTS members opted to go onto our, our email list. Um, I sought specific ideas about a study in this area. And we reviewed and refined these and ended up, um, after a, sh a short process, identifying the, a study that we wanted to do and a provisional first author was identified and of course from that point we sailed off into the sunset and it was all fine hmm. so um, we emailed this project the application form that had been filled out to demonstrate what the project was um, plus um, a data table which is an excel spreadsheet um, a, a template that people who wanted to contribute data could fill in and then send back to us um, and we emailed around the copy of the review ethical review form just to demonstrate that we then sent a few reminders out and we then chased things up and we extended the deadline and um, generally encouraged and cajoled people as best we can. I got overtaken by a few of these zippy fellows on the way through. Um, the data that was provided was sent to our administrator. Um, she then anonymised it by removing um, anything that was identifying and then forwarded it to me so that I remained blinded um, to the data. I then amalgamated the data from the various groups um, and I forwarded it to the first author. Already this is looking a little bit clunky and labour intensive and the problems start to come um, when we identify any errors or any, we need clarification on any data, we then have that whole reverse process to go through in order to try and maintain blinding. And that was something which was a real problem because if someone's only checking their emails, our, our coordinator had a baby in the meantime, so she was on maternity leave, so she'd check her emails maybe once or twice a week. Uh, and so you can see this would very quickly grind down. So I unblinded myself and tried to take things on. However, that was the length of my fingernails when we started. They were considerably longer by this stage. Um, things, things we found out, um, ethical review process was great at the Animal Health Trust but of course if in a multi-centre study that includes centres with their own ethical review centres they need to get their own ethical review and that was something that hadn't occurred to me at the start and it was something we, we try and now incorporate earlier in the process is trying to make sure that that ethical review is sought um, at the very beginning because everyone has to satisf satisfy their own requirements. We also, I also discovered one thing I discovered was that if you ask a, a bunch of extremely on paper intelligent people to fill out an Excel spreadsheet and if you give an example of the exact data type that you need and that's in said spreadsheet and you send it to 10 different people you will get 10 different interpretations of the type of data that you want in your in your columns. It, it's a remarkable phenomenon um, and one which I think we do we will need to look at because data security and data management is critical. Um, in the meantime um, the busy lives of Mark Holmes and Dan Brockman meant that they were unable to contribute. I'm not sure whether Mark actively left, he sort of fairly passively left. Um, so 
I'm not sure he knows he's left yet, actually. But Mark, I'm sorry you you, you have uh, you have left the um, the research cooperative. Um, fortunately, um, I managed to persuade Mickey Tivers, uh, who's at the University of Bristol, to um, come and help out as well. So I suckered him in, which I was quite pleased about. So back to the project and looking at uh, continental drift. I think you can still get the same theme here that uh, this is a process and it takes time. Uh, the data was checked and the data was um, was analysed. And that is a process when when there's multiple people involved with doing that, it it, ta it's, it does take too much time when these people have got day jobs. I mean, I've, I've been working as a full-time um, referral clinician with a baby daughter during this time. And that wasn't how it was when I started this process, but then life moves on for all of us. So um, liaising with the um, statistician and analysing the data, these things happened. Um, and then we went through the process of multi-author simultaneous review. And that's something, these are all things which we can improve on. And Really, it was to this picture is to emphasise that when you have got two heads doing a given problem, it, it's it's harder. You 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 generate an awful lot more problems by having two people doing the task. And I think with this particular study, because it was our first one, I really got in the way of things, and it's it's not the model we want to use going forwards. But we got there, um, and we have just submitted this to JSAP uh, this month, a paper about the incidence of surgical site dehiscence following full thickness GI biopsies in um, actually. That is in cats and dogs. I've managed to mistype that, which is a tremendous advert for my uh, precision. Um, and um, it's something that was presented at the AVSTS meeting this year, and it's been now submitted, and hopefully it will undergo the review process. So we did get there with that project. I hope we've still got a few more hurdles to jump through. It depends what the reviewers think. Um, but I really hope that, uh, considering that the process we've gone through, the multi-author review process, is, has gone through a load of people who review for JSAP anyway. So hopefully already we've, we've pre-filtered this. Um, one sad thing, um, even though our network involves um, lots of different types of vets, the only cases, the only people that were motivated to contribute to this were working in referral hospitals or in first opinion referral hospitals. So um, I thought that was interesting. Um, and it's something which was not what we aimed to do. Um, but the, that will mean that these results will only be applicable in those circumstances, which is something which I'd be interested to try and redo this study using some of the data networks that we uh, have available elsewhere. Because I think the data that we chose to analyze would be readily available uh, on those networks. So it's something I might like to take up afterwards. Anyway, during this project, we developed a spin-off project um, looking at how one, how one might grade um, surgical, surgical site complications um, and come up with a user scheme that exists to try and stratify and make communication about complications a more predictable and more reliable thing. So this uh, was a, a project which I presented at ECVS this year and it resulted from this work and it, I'm continuing to write that one up. In the meantime, in this process which had taken about three years to get to this point, it's a long period of time, um, the research cooperative itself continued and it grew. And uh, there were twice yearly discussions and presentation forums at the AVSTS meeting. So that's a key part of what we do is to use the meetings that are already there and within those meetings um, the research cooperative has an allocated period of time to use how it sees fit. And we've tried to start giving that, using that as a time to encourage people who have study ideas, who maybe have some pilot study data, to be able to come present their pilot study data with the entire aim of then allowing them to refine the question they want to ask, refine the way and the specifics about how they're going to answer that question with the people who have the cases, providing that instant feedback over what they might find acceptable, what they might opt into and, 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 and do, and with the aim of making it a multi-centre study with people engaged and inspired to, to cooperate in it. So we're using the meeting that's already present uh, as a forum and as a springboard for something that um, can then generate this type of data. And again, that's not rocket science to come up with that idea, but if the people who are interested and who are going to be seeing these cases are all in one place, all at one time, anyway, why do we seek to try and make it harder by trying to make them do it again in a different circumstance? Why not just use what's there? And so um, that was, that's what we're trying to do. We have about 230 members now uh, on our email list, and I've started doing a newsletter every three months just to try and keep that idea dripping through. Um, and this year, um, I approached the European College of Veterinary Surgery uh, about a year ago and said, look, I'd like to, for our cooperative to host a meeting at your meeting uh, so that we can expand 
um, and advertise ourselves and also get some new members and you can build that into your meeting. So rather than going to a lovely venue for three, four days every year and meeting people and listening to some people going, oh, here's what I think about things and oh, there's no evidence, we can actually use those people who are there to generate more evidence and to, to, to use that network that is present, is functional, but which hasn't realized that it has the power to generate uh, information itself. So, and that was a successful meeting and ECVS have kindly given us another um, opportunity next year to build on what we've done already. So I'm really hopeful that we can, um, we can take that opportunity and use it in an imaginative manner. Um, whilst this first paper was going through, um, Joachim Prout and his colleagues used the research cooperative to look at a condition that hadn't been reported before, to find who'd seen it, and to report some descriptive data. So it was a lovely little study, um, and it fills a hole um, that exists, and so that people seeing this condition where the parotid salivary gland uh, develops um, swelling, inflammation, and is obstructed, um, they know if you treat it in a certain way, they'll know what, what will happen, and that information wasn't available available before. So it's wonderful that Joachim has seen that through. Um, he also is involved, he, he did one of the presentations about a study that he'd like to do, um, and he's looking at um, a particular type of skin moving surgery where um, one can move some skin from one part of the body, rotate it and use it to, plum it to plug a hole. So if any of you are here, uh, have done or seen these cases, if you have colleagues who have done or seen these cases, please email Joachim, let him know about your case, He'll be able, you'll be able to contribute cases to this study. Uh, he's looking at healing complications there. We have another chap, Guillaume Chanois at the University of Bristol, looking at dogs treated surgically for spontaneous pneumothorax. So dogs who suddenly pop their lungs for no particular reason and come in with a chest full of air, unable to breathe. Uh, he wants to look um, at how these dogs do. He wants to look at what happens after they have their surgery. He looks at how many of those recur and specifically about when you retreat those recurring cases, how they do. Because we don't know how that, how that goes. It's a big deal to think about, but if we can find out those dogs do well, maybe it means we can treat dogs better because the current feeling might be otherwise it's not done that well therefore if we do it again it's going to do badly again so why don't we just put the dog to sleep so he wants to find out a thing which might really help a lot of owners a lot of dogs to make a better decision equally this procedure bypassing urine between kidneys and the bladder it's a specialist technique uh, it's a novel therapy um, Rachel Hattersley has decided that she wants to we're, a lot of people are doing this technique because it's a nice idea uh, and because there's not much else available but what, if you're doing it why don't we gather data while we're doing it why don't we work together to, um, to decide what we'd like to study so that we can actually get something useful if we look in 2013 into JSAP um, looking at the guidelines that were produced for introducing novel therapies in veterinary practice that's exactly what we should be doing we should be publishing the first case the first cohort of cases and beyond in order to demonstrate that our novel therapy um, is effective and is appropriate. So um, it's great that Rachel started to do this and I hope that may continue. We've also been approached by um, a lady, um, Dr. Dr. Sumner at Cornell, uh, who herself is looking at a rare condition. And I'm not sure whether it comes out very well on the screen. Uh, it's a lovely, a, a lovely picture of a close-up of a cat's penis. And this is a neutered male um, cat and it's developing um, these spines on its penis because it has a hormone secretion, a testosterone secreting adrenal tumour. And so although we may think it's a rare condition, it may not be, and it is something that is detectable with no clinical tests at all. So it's an interesting thing, um, and she's trying to gather data through us for that. So we now have a committee. Um, well, I'm chairing the committee. Mickey Tivers is liaising with individual projects in some way. This is very new. The committee has come in the last few months and we're trying to feel our way as to how the roles are going to work and what we're going to do. But this is how we think we're going to structure things. We have a treasurer and we have somebody who's involved with liaising with our members and trying to encourage new members. We want to have members of ARC present in every veterinary hospital, um, ideally every vets, but potentially every corporate group. However it works, we want to have people who are engaged with this and who have opted into this um, from every place. And if there aren't people um, from a given place on, on our list, we'd like to understand why and like to just introduce them to that concept and see if they can engage with us. But we don't want to force anyone. It has to be opt-in. Um, we have a secretary who's also the secretary of AVSTS. Um, we have a lady who's going to start looking at our marketing, our communications, our, our online presence, because as we know, that's of critical importance for translating what we do and for also spreading our idea. Um, we have somebody looking at funding, not only for ourselves, look for funding for the things we'd like to do to facilitate things, but also funding for individual projects, making 
us and making our members aware of the funding opportunities coming up. And that's something which I've spoken to, um, to, to Chris already about a role for veterinary evidence, potentially. Um, Nick Jeffrey is uh, our Mr. Stats, and we're very grateful. Since um, we've started doing this, uh, he's become the editor of JSAP, and he's launched the CRAG initiative, which Richard Mellonby um, mentioned earlier, um, using the model which we developed um, in the AVSS Research Cooperative, which is trying to provide access to the kind of expertise that one would need uh, in order to um, help facilitate the whole process. So I'm very grateful for all Nick's time that he gives us, um, and he is he's remarkably helpful in, in all of these processes. I don't know how he does it, but um, we, we still have the ethical review panel at the Animal Health Trust, but we are going to try the um, Royal College version with our next project. We've agreed that at the committee level that we will try the Royal College um, Ethical Review Committee because I think it's a wonderful initiative, um, and we're very grateful for the Animal Health Trust, and we, we, we'll, we'll see where that goes. We'll see which, which of those things will, will go on. So free membership, um, to the research cooperative it's free just email me um, anyone can join um, you can spread that to anyone just get people please do try and get people who are interested uh, who might be interested to um, to be involved all you'll get is an email update and you may be able to contribute data you may be able to share your ideas um, you may be able to develop and run a study yourself you may just want to listen and see what's going on but do do join because we do need everyone to um to buy into this concept um, but also it's a two-way process you really the people who are seeing cases do need um this information so we are the same people so we, we need each other as far as how we're doing, um, we, I think we're doing okay. I think we definitely could have done better. Um, and we've certainly made a number of mistakes um, on the way through. But realistically, it was always going to be that way. Um, we are maybe just about at the crawling stage. Um, and it's, but it's great to come here and to look at other networks who are further along this process because it's inspirational. It really is wonderful to see what people have done, how they've made their steps, and to try and make these things fly because that's what we, we all really want to do. So I want to talk briefly now. Am I doing okay for time? Yeah, okay. Um, about the future, about the things which um, we'd like to move on to doing. And this might be something which is of more interest to people here. Um, we are going to open an online discussion group, potentially using Google Groups. Um, this structure on the right is a hoverboard, which I'm sure fans of Back to the Future might, uh, might remember. Sadly, we still don't have this invention, and I hope that the things I'm talking about don't become the hoverboard. I hope we can see these things through. We want to mature as a cooperative business. It's the, I think it's the model that we have chosen um, to use. We've looked at other formats. We've looked at um, charities. And I, th I think running as a cooperative is going to be what's going to work. But we're, we're still working our way through that. We want to refine our processes. We certainly want to look at prospective or planned studies rather than just using the information that's there. I'll come back to that. Um, we want to grow in size. We want to create and sustain partnerships. And we also want to develop technology to help us to do that. And these four areas at the bottom are the areas really where I think the evidence-based veterinary medicine network can help. Because the things we've done so far are the retrospective things, and they do represent a huge amount of effort for people. If you ask somebody to go, and, oh, can you just go and data mine your cases and dig out all your data on 10, 20, 30, 50, 100 cases on top of your day job? It's, it's a terrible thing to ask somebody to do because it just takes a phenomenal amount of time in one go, which is what we don't have because we are busy every day. Um, the evidence may be relatively weak, not necessarily, but it is relatively weak, but it's still useful when there's nothing else. And this little picture at the bottom um, is a dew collector in a, um, in a desert, which looks like a very, um, very remarkable contraption. It took a lot of effort to build, and it produces a very small amount of water. But if that's what you've got, that's what you've got. And that, that I thought, fit quite nicely. But planned or prospective studies, they do take longer to plan and to agree upon. Um, and that's a key step, actually. Uh, data gathering can be over a longer period of time. Um, but this is the real key. Individual data capture is little and often. So you're not asking the people who are capturing the data to do a lot at any one time. So potentially, this is what makes these much more appealing um, and the fact that they provide stronger evidence. So I think this, this to me, is the, the, these, these two last points are the, are the keys for trying to do these studies with our network. It's because the evidence might be stronger and because it doesn't actually take as much time for the individuals who are gathering the data for us. So, um, so one of the other things you want to look at is who creates these studies, because it takes a lot of self-belief to generate a study, to stand up in front of people and go, yeah, I think we should do this, because you're opening yourself up. Do you, have you researched things well enough? Do you know things enough about the literature? 
do you really have an understanding of what's important? Does what you think, does that reflect on what everyone else thinks? And what's the case accrual rate going to be? Is this realistic? These are all quite difficult questions. And if we feel threatened, we don't put ourselves forward for this. So it does feel very much like a chasm in front of us uh, at the time. When, and this is the key step. The first thing that we do is, is the most important thing. But we've got some help. We've, we know from what we've seen today is we can be helped to ask the right questions. That looking at PICO studies, we can get told how to do them. It's, it's straightforward. That information is very easily available. And also the gaps in the literature have been identified for us now. Best bets for vets, evidence, um, the knowledge summaries, any recent review articles. These, these things are identified for us. Um, and so uh, they've done the hard work. Maybe the studies that we do can go on the back of those. Um, maybe these knowledge summaries can do the same thing. So hopefully the chasm in front of us, um, if you, another 80s film reference, um, it, the chasm in front of us, the thing that seems daunting, maybe it isn't as daunting as we think it is. Um, so I think we need to look at the way that ARC works with um, the Evidence-Based Veterinary Medicine Network, maybe looking at how we tie what we do to the evidence summaries, maybe looking for the people doing the best bets or the knowledge summaries to be aware that there is our group or there are groups there who will do these studies for them if we can have some help with what, what it is that we want um, to study. So I think that's an important area. Um, we want to grow in size. That's quite obvious that um, EBVM members can help us to achieve that. We want to do a partnership. This is an example of facultative mutualism between the clownfish and the anemone, um, where neither needs each other, but both function more effectively when they're in the same environment, when they're sharing the same space. And that's, I think, the role um, that EBVM um, network and ARC can, can play. Potentially, ARC could host a discussion forum at EBVM at the next meeting. We'd be very happy to explore the option to try and build projects, to try and maybe have the aim of building and doing one project every year. Um, I'm aware I'm running quite low on time. This, this last part is looking at um, how we convert busy vets seeing cases or busy vets with research experience into busy vets seeing cases and contributing data or to busy vets with research experience designing multi-centre ARC studies and maybe also getting some two-way flow. This whole area is fascinating of how we persuade people to change their behaviour. And the bottom line with it, if we look at um, what triggers or whether people respond to actually change their behaviour by responding to a given trigger, we can't influence how motivated people are to do that. But what we can influence is how easy we make it for people to do the tasks we want them to do. So our role is very much to look at trying to make things as easy as possible. And my own vision is to use smartphone technology in order to help us do that because we all have this technology now, we all have it in our pockets and rather than using um, practice-based uh, systems, we're looking to generate new evidence using the tools people have in their pockets. Um, we want to develop an app, we want to make everything as quick, intuitive and easy as possible so that when you see a case, you can identify it, you can, um, you can press a couple of buttons to be included on a study, the owner consent can be there for you to get the owner to sign. Things like randomization and blinding can be factored in. So the moment you submit a case uh, or the moment you have a case that fits the inclusion criteria, you can have that randomized. That can be sent to somebody else in your practice. So that can be blinded for you. So you can then choose which of the treatments you're going to use or have that chosen for you. And things like follow-up can be sent out by push notifications there. So there are some examples of this in the human literature, in, in the human uh, medicine. So the UK Clinical Trials Gateway is, it doesn't allow people to enter data, but it does identify the studies that are available in a searchable manner. So some sort of repository for these sort of studies is quite an interesting thing for us to look at. I'm looking for funding. That's an area I'm looking for, co for, for collaboration with. I've approached various people to do this, and we might need to look at crowdfunding for that as well. So it's an interesting area. There are significant costs and we'll see where we get to. But we'll come back to why. And the bottom line, we've all heard it from today. No one's going to do this for us. Uh, we really do need to do this for ourselves. Um, and rather nicely, I did find a picture of a mobile phone with a picture of a candle on it to end with. So um, thank you so much for your time. I'm sorry that I've overrun. And um, I'd be very grateful for as many of you to get involved as possible with this initiative. Thank you. I'm so sorry. sorry.